Conversations on the Arts. I'm Yuri Krieger. I'm delighted to have as my guest today Kevin Hanley, an artist and professor of fine art at Art Center College of Design. His current show, Seems Like Sometimes, is at Acme Gallery in Los Angeles and at I-20 Gallery in New York. Can you tell me about the show? Uh, both of them are identical shows, except for the fact that they're arranged in um, different architectural settings. They both consist of digital photography, wall murals, and text pieces. Can you talk a little bit about the title? It seems like sometimes it's spelled... Yeah. Originally, I was thinking of seems like sometimes, as in seeming. I made a typo, and... Uh, and wrote seams, S-E-A-M-S, and I kind of let it stay, and I was a little worried because it was kind of a corny reference to, like, seams in time. It, it flowed, and, I, and I, I just let it go, and, and in fact, it does somehow refer to what I'm doing. I mean, one of the sort of more humorous ways the show refers to that is the text piece, they're bits from comedy routines I've been working on, and... Are these comedy routines that you um, wrote yourself? Or? Well, yeah, I, I wrote them myself, and originally I was going to find performers to do them as, you know, works. And then I had got to thinking about um, how else I could present them, and um, I was uh, thinking about the fact that the, the subject is loosely uh, time in these comedy routines. There's sort of funny reflections on time. And so I had just made wall applications of them. And my idea was to hang them in areas of traffic in the gallery. One was the front entrance as you leave, and the other was uh, the bathroom door as you leave. So they're, they're flush to the door. I thought that it was interesting because when someone would stop to read them, the act of readership uh, interfering with the coming and going of other bodies would then produce uh, my sculptural proposal. And uh, the subject happens to be reflections on time, uh, but they're also jokes. You've worked in many media. You've, you've worked in video, you've worked in Photography, you've worked in all kinds of aspects of media, um, but non-narrative media. Is that correct? Is that correct? Um, narrative or non-narrative? Well, na uh, narrative. I mean, all the medium mediums I play with have the potential to serve narrative, but I, I I've never uh, particularly done that. I I did an, a very early video piece where I interviewed. Uh, I did a series of interviews with someone who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and allowed that person to, to tell their story in length. Um, the story be, you know, sort of proliferated in a lot of different directions. Um, so it was a play with narrative at best, but uh, never really sort of telling a story per se. This, this show seems like sometimes you have in a, a landscape with behind it kind of wallpaper, uh, striped wallpaper. Mm -hmm. 
and then another one is a, a, a portrait, and another one is an abstract sort of figure of stripes with, what is the connection between these, all of these different um, artworks? Uh, I mean, are these separate artworks, or is this one artwork? Well, they're definitely separate, but they're all part of a sort of ongoing body of work. And um, let me start from particulars, and then the, the threads will start kind of okay. um, uh, showing up. Um, the recent works, uh, like works I've done in the past, utilize single pixels of color from snapshots, digital um, photography. And I use those single pixels of color to generate large retinal fields, and be they monochrome or um, in this recent show, I did graphically rhythmic patterns like diagonal stripes, and uh, one uh, pattern was uh, a sort of floral thing that I concocted from playing with the lowercase Helvetica A like this sort of like a basic unit of meaning. And they became forms to hang uh, color on. That, that I've been doing in some way or another for a long time. I, I seem to locate a sur surplus source of imagery uh, from fugitive aspects of photography or video, such as, I mean, specifically color and movement, like these sort of fugitive things I, I, I mine and extract so that... Uh, you'd be looking at a photo, but also a sort of more drawn-out view of a large color field or a pattern or something. And it, I guess the subject is is kind of a, is an interest in resisting interpretation while proposing a kind of drawn-out, longer viewing of imagery, or perhaps proposing a particular process of seeing with regards to image production, and. If you think about the, the, uh, the palettes in, in this most recent case, the digital photos that are hung on uh, the uh, wallpapers, um, those, those, as far as subject matter goes, uh, they're small memorials typical to anyone's collection of snapshots. But I also chose subjects that exist between more than one state of being. For example, a sea lion living in both elements, air and water, or a garden being at once an example of nature and production, uh, performer as individual and public. And it, uh, so in this series, what was depicted interested me in that they were slippery as subjects and also pointed to the itinerant nature of snapshot photography itself. They... Uh, this approach to photos is evident, you know, since the early 1990s. Um, for example, uh, Saver Liquor Cadmium from 1996. Uh, that that, uh, that photo was taken during what was called the LA riots in 1992, and it is a, a close-up shot of a liquor store on fire surrounded by a cad, cadmium yellow color field. And this image uses fire as a point of uh, proliferation for visual material. Um, the particular image had me thinking of the redistribution of goods and labor in connection with the redistribution of physical matter through fire while thinking of the 
proliferation of color from some detail. I mean, it was uh, interesting for me to deal with the destruction of a store as part of retinal enjoyment and as a, an indeterminate and rapid redistribution of surplus energy. And what made you decide to just go out there and take pictures of that? I lived... That uh, liquor store was on uh, Beverly near Vermont, and I, I lived very near there. I happened to be standing next to a liquor store, this liquor store, Savor Liquor on, on Beverly. It's still there. They rebuilt it. The yeah. thing just, you know, exploded. it kind of exploded. I, um, yeah. How did you get involved to begin with? This is going back even you know, further than all of this, with, with working... With, with photography at, at all? Well... Film or... Uh, I think you started with photography, right? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, I, I started, you know, with uh, drawing and painting since I was a child. And you know, photography, you know, sort of just... It came along as another tool to produce images. Um, but when I really started using photography... Uh, it was when uh, you could digitally scan pictures and then play with them in the computer. Uh, and that's... You, you're one of the first people I'm aware of who ever did that. Well, yeah. I mean, it was 1991 and two that I started seeing, you know, what... I mean, other people were doing it, but I, I, I found these sort of... What I, what I thought were kind of economic approaches to, um, you know, what, what a photo becomes once you digitize it. And, that, and one of the discoveries was, you know, grabbing single pixels of color from something that is an overall arrangement of color. And then, you know, being able to let those details pro proliferate into, like, sort of this bigger print. And I kept playing with that on and off in different ways uh, until, you know, most recently these murals and whatnot. You, you were the first person I know, for example, who took uh, did the sort of map um, boundaries on. I mean, how would you describe those? The, um, yeah, they, I mean, they're, most people refer to them as color fields, but yeah, those were. It was almost like <coughs> it was like a photo, like those map, those those maps that people use to when they frame photographs. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, how it, did that idea come about? Well. <coughs> Those are, you know, those are like basically the image floating in one detail of color from the image. And I printed them, unlike a, a sort of applied mat to a photo, I printed those as one continuous print. So, uh, I mean, they're really like sort of like the illusionistic space in the center, flip-flopping in and out of the two-dimensional space that is just the solid color around them. And... Um, on the one hand, uh, one thinks of you know colored mats that people use to pick and choose to to sort of go with a frame or a picture to to go with a wall or whatnot, and this approach was more like a, an extraction of something from the photo and letting it sort of bleed out until it got as big or bigger than the photo. Would you remove it from the from the image? Of the yeah, I mean it, it, it's a kind of. Uh, sampling that you can do in a, in a computer. You, uh, 
uh, application called Photoshop. I mean, you, you, there's literally an eyedropper tool that you, you can touch anywhere on the photo and it will give you a single swatch of the area you've touched. And you can zoom in as far as like a single pixel of color and get that color. And ever since I've sort of used that to create palettes, I mean, I've even taken uh, palettes that I created digitally, printed them out, matched them with wall paint or, or oil paint or whatever to do you know, various projects. And I even did some garments for this last show where I hung, I, I used a, uh, the palettes from the photos and the design from one of the wall murals to, cut, to you know, create fabric from, and I made uh, hoodie sweatshirts. So that um, this sort of retinal aspect of the show, this you know, sort of field of shapes would also be hung on the form of a human body, which would then you know, literally walk off with it. And uh, so, so they, they could you know, play in between sculptural proposition and you know, two-dimensional proposition. So what was the very first one that you did like that? Do you remember what year that was? I think the first one was... Um, let's see. You know, the first one might actually have been um, the Burning Liquor Store, because I shot that in 92 and played around with it soon after. And I actually created the digital file about three or four years before I actually printed it. The idea of the, um, of the presentation, the way that you put the... Um, you mounted it, for example. You know, that's become pretty face mounting. Oh, yes, yeah. The face mounting. The face mounting and also mounting it flush to a piece of aluminum that would be very flush to the wall. Yeah, I am. Um, I was I was the first. I was the first one I remember doing the aluminum mount with watercolor paper just flat to the wall, and um, that came from pursuing, on the one hand, maximizing the absorbency of the sort of print on watercolor paper, paper, and also. Uh, the flushness interested me so that there would be no uh, sort of visual interference with just this this thing on the wall, which was mostly pure color. And, um, yeah, those came with a lot of difficulty. I mean, most of them got destroyed fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say... They were very fragile, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, my attitude was, is, is, even if it was a very temporary visual effect to achieve. I was glad to achieve it for the, whatever length of time. Um, and I was young enough not to be thinking in terms of being collected or something. So, you know, that came back to bite me, but at the same time, those pieces had the most impact being what but they were. Looking at your bio, I mean, I'm sort of trying to get, go to sources of where you started. And I can't help noticing here, um, born in Sumter, Sumter. South Carolina, 1969. Uh-huh. Um, what, what, what brought you to... How, 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 <laughs> yeah. You were born in Fort Sumner. Yeah. Not, not Fort Sumner, but Sumter, South Carolina, in, yeah. in 1969. Well, my father was in the military. So, uh, you know, I was kind of a, a military brat in that sense. I mean, we were... 
there because he was stationed there, and then uh, and then um, from there we lived in Hawaii for a bit, and then San Diego for a bit, and then but most of my life has been in L.A. But yeah, it was a it was a military thing. Just for some, some trip, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 1969, the uh, Vietnam War. Right, right. He was he served uh, plenty of years in Vietnam. He actually met my mother on leave uh, uh, from Vietnam when he had a short-term station in uh, Taiwan, and she she was working uh, at a switchboard center where they met, and it's sort of like a a really romantic, you know, sort of war love story or whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's an Irish guy from Brooklyn, was, um, rest in peace, and uh, and she is Chinese, and, you know, and I'm, you know, half-half. Right. Um, but anyway, that, that, so what brought, you, what, your, what brought your family to Los Angeles, California? Well, actually, I moved here when I was 17, uh, right after graduating high school. And um, shortly after I graduated from high school, and it was, I don't know, it was luck of the draw, I got accepted to go to Otis Parsons. And uh, that sort of, you know, set my, you know, set up my history here. Um, Yeah, and I just never... I never considered uh, living elsewhere. I stayed busy when I got here, and I'm still busy. So you travel all over the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's places I'd like to live. But, uh, <laughs> but you've, you've lived here all along, but you've shown everywhere. You know, all over. I've had the good fortune of exhibiting in um, uh, Germany, Japan. I even uh, put up some work in uh, former Yugoslavia at one time, and uh, yeah, I've, I've I've had a really uh, sort of uh, fortunate broad exhibition um, history. So, what there are a couple of pieces that you've done that have sort of stuck in my mind. Um, I haven't seen all your shows because obviously they're every they've been places I haven't been, and, um, but for example, the Fred Astaire piece. Video. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come about? Um, that video came about, well, first it was from just an appreciation of Fred Astaire's dancing. I was watching one of his movies. And, and this, like some of the photo stuff I've done, um, came along with an early consumer level editing program. And basically, I used I took a little clip from uh, Fred Astaire's routine. I want to be uh, I want to be a dancing man from the Belle of New York, and uh, for me, Fred Astaire's dancing on film is sort of a, a landmark in the history of moving picture. His his image exemplifies with such great economy the the human body generating movement and sound, and utilizing this video editing program that. The footage of Fred Astaire um, is, you know, was replayed by the movement of my hand adjusting the mouse. So, and the video playing technique was kind of like scratching a record, you know, in the sense that 
the mechanics of the playback were influenced by a direct movement of the human hand. Like it's, it's resulted in a re-articulation re of the given media. It also happened to be kind of entertaining to watch because you, it, it felt sped up and slowed down at the same time. It, spelt, it was jittery and noisy in a funny way. and It, was, it, it sort of produced its own pleasure. And, and so I filled the length of one three-quarter inch videotape with that and exhibited it shortly after and it, uh, it, was, uh, it was collected pretty quick. And, and recently it's been mentioned in a, the publication uh, Art Cinema that Paul Young just put out, which is, was quite, quite a surprise to me, but I was, I was quite happy to see it there. And what about the one with um, Fidel Castro? Uh, uh, there was a lot of events in the news. I was looking at uh, a lot of these sort of uh, pundits uh, sort of talking about, like, you know, what's going to happen when Fidel dies or whatever. Because, you know, every year there's this idea that he's going to die. They never does. <laughs> right. They, never right. They, they come and go, and uh -huh. he's still here. Yeah. And it, around that same time, I'd also been looking at this image of the dead Toreador that Manet had painted mm. with this wonderful, strange perspective uh, that the body is in. And the two things going around in my head um, got me looking for images of Fidel without his hat on. I thought maybe I could sort of doctor him up to look like he's lying in state. And I actually got a, a great image from a friend and he was lit wonderfully, he, was, uh, he didn't have his hat on. And, and so I just sort of played with, you know, turning the image so as if he was lying down. And I doctored it digitally to look, you know, so, that, so, that, so his flesh looked deader and, and whatnot. And the image uh, sort of passed pretty um, successfully for Fidel lying in state. I mean, a lot of people that saw the image said, gosh, I didn't know he died already. And, and this, so <laughs> what I had done was I took it and put it into a video editing program. Uh, I started playing with a blur factor and length of time that an image be can come into focus. Uh, I wanted to make this image come into focus over time, but not too rapidly but I wanted it to be just enough so if you're looking at this image, you know something's changing, but you can't quite figure out what it is. So it starts out as a total blur abstract. And about four and a half minutes in, it becomes sharp. So when you look at the image as it's a blur, it's sort of breathing in a weird way. You know, you, you, you realize something might be emerging or, or not or whatever. So what well, yeah, just 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 by making this thing come into focus, it 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 played sort of retinal games with the viewer. You know, it it's really just coming into focus, but it's coming to focus over a long enough time where you don't quite know what's happening, but you know something's happening. Um, I mean, this is coming in raw to see the piece for the first time. Obviously, it, it doesn't like. Uh, it doesn't really work a second time, which is also interesting to me. I made this motion picture that works once, you know, uh, for the for the viewer. Uh, but the the things that that 
were really interesting to me regarding the, what was happening when I was first looking at it was um, uh, it, um, it got me thinking about particularly distinct aspects of comprehending an image because in the blurry moments of the video, the Im imagination is working to conclude what one's eyes are seeing. Like, is this something I recognize? What is this, a landscape or a fetal thing or what is it? And then at the moment of visual clarity, the imagination works to piece together a relative conclusion, like, uh, what does this picture mean? And, you know, what are the consequences? What's going to happen when the old man dies, you know, kind of thing. So, so there's, I found that to be like these sort of bifurcating articulations of the imagination. One is, you know, just recognizing what this is, and the other thing is just like putting together a sort of historical rationale between the consequences of this thing which is now in your head an event. It was moments ago, not, you know, this other thing, this nothing, you know, this. That, that was sort of what, what made me stay interested and made me want to show the piece after all. And, uh, is that the piece of MoCA? Yes, it's it uh, is in the MoCA collection. Uh, uh, it's an edition of four. MoCA has one, uh, and there's uh, three three other very good collections. That, that I'm very happy to have them in. Um, yeah, so that you know, in a way, um, that piece, like the others, have a certain resistance to interpretation. You know. Now in this show, you again use aspects of, of the videos you've Yeah, actually, um, there's three kind of abstract prints um, that I recently produced. Uh, they're derived from uh, excuse me, low-resolution um, footage of violent camera movements, and they're actually a montage of various irk subjects, such as celebrities smacking cameras from the hands of paparazzi. And uh, the collection of footage locates a certain s surplus source of imagery, as I mentioned before, um, when subjects are physically adverse to the camera pointed at them. And so um, in that work kind of can actually be loosely traced back. I mean, they're just prints now. And and it can be kind of, the, but the logic of extracting the sort of mark made from motion. Uh, it can be traced back to a piece from, also from 96, called Two and Four. And, and that was a result of two participants throwing a camera between one another. And in that case, uh, relations of force determine the imagery and circumnavigated the recording like of a subject. What's that? It looks like a landscape. Oh, yes, the, 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 the prints do. Yeah, I mean, they're basically moments of a, a uh, you know, some, some instances when the camera was hit, there was a static, and that kind of looks like a sea surface or something. And then at other moments, you'd see the sort of wipe or smear. And uh, uh, I also, by the way, you know, they, they look like, you know, they're about four, four colors each or whatever. I... I took the footage, uh, stills from the footage, but I also uh, made them a, a, a single color by using the palette from other photos. They're paintings in the sense that I use, but the marks are made from this sort of violent camera movement and, and the palette is made from other photos. Uh, 
And as you, as you know, the results are kind of strange. They're very strange images. They don't look like anything you can. They're like abstract pieces. Right. They're like abstract paintings. Well, they are in a sense, but maybe abstraction is not the word. I I keep using right, the word like, extraction. Like non, non it's not representational. It's not representational, but in fact, those are very particular marks. They're not representing a mark. They're actually re they're actually expressions of this, this a physical expression. You know, they actually um, they're marks. They are what they are in a sense. You know. Um, so wh when did you start to take the the, um, the imagery? I mean, you're still working with a computer, but then you're moving into the wall itself. Well, the, the wall, the wall, using wall like this, I've been printing on vinyl um, these, these sort of patterns with the palettes I'm building. And that was a logical extension from earlier work where I would match paint and just do wall paint, uh, like a, a monochrome wall painting. Uh, but I just decided that since I'm using printing to, to do, to print the photos and whatnot, I could further use printing to actual, actually, you know, envelop architecture, and then further envelop, you know, human body, or, uh, uh, cause a, you know, blockage on a, uh, a doorway by just putting text on it. And so, so it was, it was just more printing. But I guess, given technology now, you can print with an adhesive back and super large. So you could cover walls like you would with wallpaper. And I, I just thought, well, that's, yeah, that's sort of like the next, it, a really easy sort of uh, lateral move for me, you know, just so I keep putting these things I make in different circumstances. So let's say somebody would, were to um, purchase the piece of uh, one of these, um, can they change the dimensions of the, of the wallpaper? Yes, um, actually, um, the digital file comes with instructions uh, that show you how to take the dimensions of whatever so they wall. Buy the digital file. Right. What you get is a digital file and instructions, and then sort of the guide of how to go about getting it made and installed. Are these additions or? They are additions. Um, they're all additions of four. I, the, for this last last two shows, I did editions of four across the board. Um, and it, strange as it is, uh, over the years I've struggled with editions and never wanted to go over a single digit. And you know, they were always a hassle to me. And I finally, for, for myself, decided the edition of four is comfortable, manageable, and I get an AP out of that. And um, I'm going to kind of leave it at that. Right. And not be pressured to do more than that or less than that or whatever. So, where does the imagery come from? For example, the one, the uh, image that you did for the, um, it was also, in the, I noticed it was on the wall, but it was also on the fabric for the hoodie. That is. What, what is that image? That is uh, a little floral, kind of an icon I used from repositioning a lowercase Helvetica A. And so I just sort of made this sort of like. Baroque-looking mark, you know, um, and I liked the mark because it was sort of a rounded triangle kind of thing, and, and so it easily created a pattern, and the pattern also did sort of uh, 
visual tricks like it, it sort of formed different patterns depending on how far back you are from the wall and then it further does that with how I applied the uh, palette and it seems like it, a real autopilot thing but actually that particular pattern took about five months to finally conclude and, you know, into a thing that would you know, repeat itself a certain way. Um, the one on the wall was a result of two different palettes interacting from two different photos, and the one on the sweater was uh, the same pattern, but I, I had to pick four colors from the overall palette uh, because being the nature of, you know, printing this fabric, it was like, I was kind of limited. Uh, but they worked out, you know. So who are these people in all these pictures, in, in this exhibition? Um, in the, the straight iPhone photos, I took them with my iPhone, the ones that um, lead to the palettes. Uh, one is a picture of a, 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 a music star performing, and... Um, it's sort of a subtext, but the, the performer is Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees. Remember this band from the 80s? Or late, yeah. late 70s. And then I guess the, um, the sea line is actually just a sea line off the central coast jumping out of the water. Uh, now, further back in the room, I have, I, have, uh, three, I have three images, also iPhone photos, uh, but they're a result of uh, an actual glitch that came about in iPhone photos where your image was reorganized randomly. Uh, and once I discovered my phone was doing that, I went crazy and shot like, you know, two days worth. And I came up with three images that I liked. You know, sort of a collaboration between me and the camera. And one image is a, is a down shot on my wife Carla's shoe, which was a checkered van. So it was a pattern that was already checkered and then that sort of splitting up sort of further divided the, the picture plane. And the other shot that was next to it is looking up at her face. So it's like a portrait of her in pieces. And then if you go to the right, there was a sort of kind of more subtle, uh, look like just sort of soft gradients uh, of light and that was just pointed at the the sky and it was just before nightfall it's called skies before night and, and the splitting up with the gradients of the of the darkness coming um, for me created an interesting picture plane and if you look hard you can see the crescent moon in there which kind of gives it away if you if you find it now there's a separate piece in the back room uh, here at Acme that was four portraits that's sort of direct 35 millimeter digital photography and I used uh, uh, you know, studio lighting and I had the help of my sister-in-law who's a brilliant commercial photographer uh, the subject is basically sisters and they are uh Twins, they're identical twins, and really, I, I thought it was the same person. Yeah, well, that was sort of the object of the exercise. That these pictures are hung on 
four different walls, there are four different pictures. Uh, they're, they were all shot with the sisters looking at each other from different uh, positions, and then they're were, they were hung this way. They're all wearing the same sweater, but for one picture, which is the same sweater, different color, hmm. which is another visual cue to kind of throw things off. But the object of the exercise was kind of to, to, to you know, that the viewer would look and, and go to identify an individual subject, but then this would kind of fold in on itself and sort of trip itself up as you went around the room. Um, and to me, that was kind of just an interesting way to play with... Uh, Portraiture. The only other portraiture I've ever done or felt comfortable doing was shooting some colleagues that had um, lazy eyes or wandering eyes, so that when you looked at the, the picture of the person, you know one of the things that is sort of the big has been a big topic of discussion in, in portrait photography is like is the is the viewer you know. Is, is the viewer somehow being asked to identify with this person, or what is the you know what is the subject being imagined? What are they? What do we imagine they're thinking, or are they looking out at what or whatever? And I thought it was interesting that if you had someone with a wandering eye, you don't know where they're looking, and for the viewer, you can look at the person as looking in one direction or the other, but only if you lock in on one one trajectory of the gaze. and So so that was the only other time I, I sh shot someone's face, so to speak. <laughs> so why do you use the um, iPhone as your camera? Well, right now, I've been, I used, in this recent series, the iPhone uh, camera, because one, it, it's, it's my phone, and it's what I always have with me, and for me, it was a sort of logical replacement of, of the point-and-shoot camera, which, again, you know, is is the most handy for a kind of itinerant s snapshot. Uh, like a Leica or whatever. Yeah, but it, this is the most sort of reduced like mode. Canon. Yeah. Like Canon. Well, I mean, those those even get to. Um, uh, I mean, this these these phone cameras are literally point and shoot. You know, they're literally. Right. Um, and if they put that flat now. They're very flat. Um, and they're, uh, uh, for me, they're, they're it, it's interesting for me, not so much that, you know, well, look what I can do with a, uh, a phone camera, but it's, it's, the, it's the fact that everybody makes picture images on this. I mean, that's kind of where one finds themselves now in terms of image production, because everybody produces images on their phone, they're, you know, they're redistributed so rapidly, and, and it's sort of more about this flipping through these images rather than, you know, sort of carefully staging one to, you know, express one's ideas or whatnot. So I wanted to start with that kind of image-making machine right off and then generate a particular process of seeing with regards to image production, uh, this sort of longer... Uh, drawn out viewing of imagery. So what are these jokes about? The, both of the jokes um, address uh, nostalgic uh, 
nostalgic interest in people who, who end up doing these sort of like retro identities for themselves as a sort of pastime. And it was sort of like, you know, they're written for a stand-up comedian to sort of jab at, at this sort of cross-section of, of people who are into nostalgia. I mean, for me, that was a, a funny reflection on how time works. For instance, one of the jokes talks about if you, you encountering these sort of uh, greaser types uh, that, that they're into like this 50s thing but now and they have it sort of dialed in the way they like it and, and the comedian would approach them with the sort of greaser image that he remembers from the 70s which is the Fonz and, and, and say hey sit on it to these characters and they get angry at him because uh, to them the Fonz isn't cool, but to, to the comedian, the, the, you know, the, that's a greaser, right? Leather jacket, greased hair, like, what's wrong? You know, so the 70s represented the 50s incorrectly to the 90s. Well, each, to be honest, each era is much more complex than it, when it comes to the Sure, sure, but it's the representation that's being right, right. gamed with, you know, and, right. and that the backwards looking, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the Barth's essay in Hollywood movies about of uh, Romans, these uh, sort of American hairstyles of the 50s and whatnot. You know, Roman is eternally seen in this way by the movie audience. I mean, it, it, in, in that, you know, uh, again, to play with the title of the show, there's, there's seams of time that you know, kind of were ready to be played with. And, and, and by putting that reflection of of time in a humorous way, where someone would actually maybe stop and read it to get to get the joke, extract the humor. They're creating a physical delay in the coming and going of either someone waiting to get in the bathroom or someone coming in through the door while you're reading on the inside of the door. And so that was my sculptural proposition that would take place in time uh, uh, as an extension of the act of readership and. And then if you look for content, well, content is actually content. The content or subject is actually time. Um, you know, if you finish the joke. You know. right. So how did it happen that um, they were showing at the same time as uh, acting in at uh, I-20 in New York? Well, it... You know, I must say that both galleries just encouraged me to to get up and knock it out and since the source material for all of the stuff is digital and there were editions anyway I was just rushed to do two of the four editions for everything so that I could stage two shows it was it was a near and human feat because it was around the holidays and um, production time was very tight but I had the help of some uh, outstanding Printers and framers and installers and you know I, I'm just really fortunate to be able to stage two shows like that and it it came off well and I also was really happy to see the same things articulate completely differently and you know because of the given architecture of the two distinct galleries. 
for instance, the, both jokes uh, played in New York on the front door because, and I just got it coming and going on glass. So there's a, if you approach the front door, which are all glass, you see one bit of text in reverse and one uh, right side up. And then if you're leaving, it's the, it's the opposite. So it was just like this sort of, you know, great re-articulation for me with the, from the one that happened here, which is the inside of two separate doors. Looking forward, I mean, one of the things um, I want to do is take that video footage that I've collected that I got the uh, still imagery from, the, uh, the cameras being slapped around, and find a way that's uh, satisfying to me to, to actually display the video footage. So far, I don't want to do it as a projection or, or, or on a monitor. So that's sort of my, one of my next things coming up, uh, figuring that out. And also, you know, I look forward to doing more uh, of these sort of mural-type installations and you know, coming up with new palettes for them and, and different shapes and whatnot. And also, uh, the jokes are... are and, or, you know, I think they're going to be an ongoing series, yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the, those might actually take the form of uh, video because I'll have people performing them. So, um, thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thank you.